Welcome to Feels Like Healing with me, Al Lewis. A podcast where I talk to artists about how creativity has helped them process their grief. The reason I'm making this podcast is because when I was 21, I lost my dad to MS. That seismic moment in my life made me decide to become a singer-songwriter. I'd been making music before that point, but never considered it a life choice or as a career. However, after the death of my dad, creativity became a solace for me and a way I could express both my joy and my pain. It made me feel alive in the very moment when I was confronted with the ephemeral nature of life and the devastating reality of loss. So I wanted to talk to other people who've ended up in the creative world, but who've also experienced loss, to see whether they have similar stories of why they got into creativity or whether they were already creative people and just happened to suffer grief. I hope during these conversations that I will come to better understand grief and why it makes us feel how we feel and do what we do. This is Feels Like Healing. My guest this week on Feels Like Healing is the filmmaker and writer Jamie Adams. Jamie is known for his feature-length films such as Wild Honey Pie, Black Mountain Poets, Bittersweet Symphony, and a film that I had a particular interest in, Balance Not Symmetry. Balance Not Symmetry is a film which details the story of a young girl, Caitlin, as she's in the third year of her art degree, and she also loses her dad at the same time, and the film follows her in the aftermath of that death and how she's dealing with the grief through her art. So having seen that, I thought it would be pertinent to have a conversation with Jamie about the inspiration behind that film and also whether there was any personal loss involved in the decision to make a film about grief. So first of all, hello, Jamie. How are you? Hey, Al. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm all right, mate. Not too bad. So as I said, I've, I saw Balance Not Symmetry and then read a bit more about the the subject matter. But if we go back a little bit, um, when did you first feel like you wanted to become a filmmaker and a writer? I think when I was 12 years old, I watched Jurassic Park and it was at a similar time that my mother fell ill and went into uh, hospital for, she was only meant to go for the day and she ended up being in there for two months um, because they, she had high blood pressure and they couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, and my life had been really quite steady up to that point, uh, idyllic sort of childhood. Um, and so I think seeing Jurassic Park at my mate's birthday, we didn't go to the cinema often. I mean, there was only one in Port Albert. Um, I live in Port Paul. Uh, that my parents weren't really cinema goers, so they didn't fancy going there too often. And so to go to the cinema and see Jurassic Park, and it just kind of, you know, I knew looking back massive fan of film throughout my entire life in terms of going to the video shop twice a week and all that kind of stuff but um but Jurassic Park really hit me to a point where you know even when it must have been in the cinema for a while because my mum came out of intensive care and one of the first things I thought to say was you need to see Jurassic Park <laughs> and and I, I I mean I remember my mum oh, how are you doing mum yeah <laughs> I was like a I mean she had a panic attack when we went into the cinema. Like she didn't want to be in there. I remember that. And then, um, but she was doing it for me. And I think, well, I, I mean, I'm only thinking about this now, which is bizarre, but I just have the thought that maybe it's because Jurassic Park was about bringing something back. But yeah, but you know, it's, it, Jurassic Park really is the whole ex explanation of you can bring something beautiful back. And when I think about it, I think I was just trying to say that science 
will win here that you know you, there's not gonna be anything problematic mum you know you've gone in and you've you've had what you needed to have and now you're going to be fine sort of thing i think just about is one of those incredibly hopeful films and it's you know it's about the magic of what cinema can do which is things that are dead and gone can be brought back to life in front of your eyes you know and feel real so that's i think that all ties in to be honest obviously i wasn't thinking that as a 12 year old i was just thinking how incredibly exciting the film this was and, and just gave me this sort of feeling that this is something i really wanted to be a part of was something to do with this and that knowledge from that point onwards did you think right okay i'm gonna have to maneuver my life now in a way so that i can become a filmmaker or was it just on the back burner at that point i mean my dad was uh, a pub landlord um so it wasn't really anything i thought i mean everyone thinks i could be a footballer <laughs> uh, <laughs> or or in a band that were things that working class people could do um but the idea of you know the, the the idea of being a part of film i don't think i really had that thought i think what i had the thought of was was story i had the thought of i started writing stories from that point um and oh, i mean yeah. I, st I started writing for the the school paper and all that kind of stuff and so i didn't really necessarily but then i did start to to notice there's a guy called spielberg and i've seen a lot of his films and so I wrote his name down. So, oh, he did Jaws. And he, well, so I was, I was making connections, but I think I was writing down his name. I wrote down who he worked with on Jurassic Park. I'd come up with my own films and then crew them up, basically, in this book, which I wish <laughs> I still had. It had some great ideas in it. And it was just like, oh, yeah, well, that kind of director, like Curtis Hanson would do this kind of film. And So I was making all those connections from the age of 12 13 onwards but i think at that point i still thought being a sports commentator was a easier route when you sort of got to that age where you have to make decisions in life about um subjects and ideas about a career w were you maneuvering towards trying to be a filmmaker at that point or does it does that come later on or did that still seem unrealistic as a as a life goal i don't think i've ever seen anything as unrealistic and i think that just comes from the fact that both my parents were just so secure in their love and the the household that we had was vibrant in terms of we lived above pubs and we weren't ever really allowed downstairs but there was always a hubbub of community spirit going on um you could be oasis that was definitely something that was on my mind and so but my brother was the musician he's great he picked up a guitar and immediately knew how to play somehow and um that's the one thing he's better than me at he always has that He's my younger brother, by the way, so I've got to be out of that way. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but then he was like, well, you know, you can't play an instrument, but why don't you take up the drums? Because we did want to be in a band together, because that seemed to be, again, as I said, that seemed to be something that was, if the stereophonics can do it, anyone can do it, you know, seemed to be the thing. It was like yeah. three chords and a decent beat. So, um, so we did play in a band for a while, and that seemed to be something that I was like, yeah, we're definitely, I even started mapping out a tour that we were going to do when we were 16 and 17. Very much the storytelling part of my brain where I have wild ideas, but never really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow through on something like that. It was just an idea that I had that was exciting. And I wasn't a very good drummer, to be honest. So um, I went on work experience. I just kept ringing and ringing and ringing BBC drama. And I was like, I, I just need to have, I need to know what it is that you know, television and, and filmmaking is really. Um, and eventually I got through to somebody to do a Satellite City and I, which was that 
the Boyd Clack Incredible um, sitcom back in the day. And I managed to get on it for three days just to watch, really. I mean, it wasn't like a runner's mm. role. I was just basically watching. And I thought, this is better. And I, and I noticed the director, and I was like, oh, right, yeah, they really are the boss. And I like that. I like the idea of control. I like the idea that you were in a, in a position where the story, you know the story, you know what you want from the story, and you get to, at that time, very basically, you get to make that happen via other, pe mm. via other people. Like, you didn't have to step in front of the camera and do that. You get other people to do that. Um, but everybody's listening to you. And I think when I look back now, I'm like, there's a lot of this shy boy who the security of the family and that seeming to dissipate in terms of mum disappearing for two months. And, you know, we knew that it was serious. I think the idea of control and being able to be a part of a story or a world that is part of your, well, it's, it's, it's something that you're in control of. That, that's, that's, I think that was the big pull of it all, really. As much as you can love something, there's also something that really pulls you toward it. You mentioned that your, that your mum was ill when you were 12 years old, but then she came out of intensive care. Was that therefore, at, after that point, was it, was her health deteriorating all, all the way up until you lost her? Or, or were you feeling that the family unit was back and strong? What was the situation at home after that first visit? Well, she goes into hospital every couple of months after that. Um, and there were always developments such as, you know, they eventually found out what it was. It was scleroderma, which is a disease that only affects about 100,000 people in Britain. But as soon as we knew scleroderma, and she was going back and forth London every to um, Hampstead Hospital at the Royal Free in Hampstead. That was where that's where people went that had scleroderma, and, and they would have this new drug called Iloprost, and it would make you better for another three months. There's just no knowing, basically. I don't know. I don't even know the stats, mm. but I know that most people can live with it. But it was clearly a, an uncertain time for you then, from that point on. Looking back, there was a lot to deal with. But I think when you're going through, when anybody goes through anything with illness in the family, I think you just all pull together and don't think about how this is affecting you or how, or how it's affecting anyone. You just kind of go, well, you know, we're facing this issue it's it's not great and we just got to pull together and 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 think my dad's favorite words think positive that's all he could keep repeating to himself and um i mean it was it was difficult as well for my dad because then he had to give up his job um to look after mum and the next thing you know we're moving to the council estate how long did you have your mum for after that initial period of being 12 13 so i went to university um in 1998 and then i lost my granddad in the just before Christmas, who was the only granddad I ever knew, and he was one of the my, the key influences in my life as well. And then in the Easter in so April '99, March actually, end of March '99, um, I came home for Easter. I wasn't coming home, and then I came home because there was something calling me to come back. Mum didn't tell us when she was feeling bad. She didn't like to to do you know to affect what was going on with us, and I was the only one who went to university. She, I could see it in her eyes that. She wasn't fine and that she knew. I think people know when it, when it's time. Um, she couldn't look at me in the, on the way to the, I was in the ambulance with her and she couldn't look at me in the ambulance and I was like, yeah, this doesn't look good. 
And the more you talk about grief, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because then you start to get clouded by the fact that they're not here and in, in taking you back to that time is probably what I avoid the most, even when I try and make films about this. Really? Do you, do you, do you find it difficult to talk about it and to go back there? I mean, how old were you? You were 21, weren't you? Yeah. So it's like, you know what it's like. You're still very young at 18, 19. My brother was 15 yeah. and I could see how it's affected him more than me. Um, but it was, it was, I was a very young 18-year-old going to university and to have those two momentous things happen in terms of losing my granddad and losing my mum. And my dad then became somebody completely different as well in terms of not being mm. able to keep it together necessarily. And I could just see my family disintegrating, really. And I hated that. And, and so anytime I go to write and I start to... In fact, a lot of my films, characters don't have parents. Or if they, do, yeah. they, don't, if they do, they don't talk to them. What were you doing at university, Jamie? It was media arts, they called it, but it was film and television <laughs> production, uh, really. So I was making films. I mean, especially when mum died, I stopped doing the course, really. I, I made my own course. I just started going and watching three films by Fellini and then going and reading up about them. And I'd go to my European cinema class. Um, but generally speaking, it, it was difficult for me with authority from that moment on, actually. At home, we'd become... It was not good. I could see my dad had lost all energy. My brother, bless him, didn't know what to do. And, and my sister, my other sister, was just like, you have to stay home, you have to stay home. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, no, I need to get back to these vibrant people from around the world that are so different to me and keep learning from them and keep being what mum wanted me to be, which was, uh, you know, a person of the world. Um, and so I forced myself to go back and I'm glad I did because they were, they were incredible support. I, I think I could easily have crumbled like my old man if I stayed at home. Did you feel even at that point that the, the art, was was a solace was it cathartic yeah no i recognized i think that was part of the pull to go back as well was i think being an artist was something i started to understand around about that moment in terms of the community aspect of it as well having other artists and hearing their passions and stories and where they you know what they were thinking about and what their thoughts were was much more enriching than kind of spending time on my own I totally take myself of being a student really at that point either. I was just like, as I said, I was making my own course up in terms of what I needed from this place. And all the people around that, there were musicians that were great. There was there's, uh, the drama kids, you know, there's people want to do things. And I was able to make a, lo a lot of short films really. You only really had to make three over three years and I ended up making it nine, eight or nine. Putting that into practice though, I was always like, well, as long as I use these moments into continuing to make something and to explore why it is that I'm changing or what I'm feeling or what's going on within work then it's fine it was, a, it was one of my lecturers actually he was like well why don't you start bringing the, the cast together or some actors together and just work with them talk through with them what it is that you want to talk through and see if it leads somewhere and then that got me into Mike Lee and learning about his method and immediately recognizing that it wouldn't be a method for me, but there was something within it, which is basically the community aspect of it. Um, and calling upon people that are smarter than you together to be able to express what it is that I really would like to express. And so that's where it came from. And so I spent many hours with 
some of the drama kids just going through like three hour workshops um, where we create characters and see them to see them talk to one another really and looking back a lot of that was about loss and isolation and but then it was always hopeful there would always be something at the end where it was like oh but it's going to be okay it's going to be better hmm. in fact um, and it wasn't conscious it was very much like a painter throwing paint at a wall it was like I didn't know what I was doing I was a kid I was just like let's just get people together that are sensitive and open enough to hear what I'm saying and put it into their own words um, and yeah that's when I got the bug really for, hmm. for working in that way if you've graduated you've left university how do you then go about like you say, there's a lot of people who call themselves filmmakers but don't actually get to the point of delivering something that is that can be seen as a film and uh, held up as that. So how did you get to that point? Again, I just kept ringing and ringing, sending my graduation film in. I met up with a few people like Carl Francis, and he was like head of BBC Wells Drama for many years. So to, for him to like my graduation film and physiopy at... Um, Fiction Factory, who just made a, a big movie as well, Rancid Aluminium. There were these people that I was respecting in terms of they were making films and they yeah. were at the top of their game in Wales. And I was meeting them because they liked my films. So I was like, there must be something in my work because these people are meeting up with me. And so, yeah, I just kept ringing and ringing Dawn Francis at BBC Wales. I don't know why it was me that was chosen, but she chose me to be the camera trainee. But that was Into the Void with Daniela Nardini was in it from This Life. And it, that was a real eye-opener, uh, being on that set. Yeah, so when did you start making your own thing? For me to continue to move forward and get to the point that I really need to get to, which is to be a filmmaker and being able to express fully whatever this is that's driving me that I need to express, which is basically, I now realise, there's some part of me that believes if I am able to fulfil the ultimate goal of being a great filmmaker might mean that I get to see mum again. Now, that's a really philosophical, existential thing that I've been mm. working, I've discovered through therapy, but that's essentially where it's headed. Is It's Jurassic Park, <laughs> to bring it back mm. around. If I, yeah, can get, yeah. if I can get to Jurassic Park, then that means I can bring dinosaurs. Not only mum wouldn't like to be called a dinosaur, but I can bring... <laughs> I can bring she'd love. I can bring I can bring mum back, you know, and that's ridiculous. And yeah. I know that's not real, but it feels really very much a part of. I mean, it's all magic anyway, isn't it? The idea of creativity mm -hmm. and art and where it comes from. And um, but yeah, so pragmatically, I kept on. I just kept on making f uh, a short film every year. Then you can do web series, which people seem to think was fine thing to do. And amongst all of this, I'm being a music promoter. The idea here is to be busy, to be as busy as I possibly could, but still meet as many incredibly talented people from all kind of popular arts was the the running theme I can see that's going on here. Um, and I was, I was just making connections again in the enemy yeah. about who, who was working with who. And this does all filter into the film stuff because it's about kind of knowing that there's that wider world there. And as long as I was making connections in some way, I was controlling what was going to happen next. Which was which was what for you? What were you planning in that in the mid noughties That was when Zoe turned to me and she was like, "You need to stop making European art cinema and try and make something <laughs> that might make some money." Um, and I realised comedy was absolutely the thing that I was passionate about, but didn't believe in myself as a com comedian or comic writer. 
and then again all those skills of bringing people together that are much more able to be that kind of person I, knew, I could tell who they were so I knew I could bring them together and through the improvisation I'd been studying up until this point everything's about preparation isn't it for that moment at which you need it to come to fruition and that's mm -hmm. what happened so I, I did a web series and it was really funny I thought and so did you know people like Jesse Armstrong who wrote Peep Show and so on and the internet of course the whole idea of being able to send these things off to people and they would watch them and they were like top of their game people like Jesse Armstrong and Ian Morris from the Inbetweeners and so then there started to be a little buzz about my work and I was just like oh maybe I am gonna do this and then I realized how much money we'd spent and I was working as a teacher at that A-level teaching A-level in B-Tech Media just to keep some money coming in uh, it was always heading toward doing a feature film because I knew that that's what you needed and then I started to do the figures and everything I'd been planning since I was 12, 13. <laughs> I started just doing the same thing, but now it's with real people. I just started making a list of who would be the DOP, who would you know, be sound recordist, who would be in it. And I knew that who would be in it would be the important thing. And just reach for people that I would be able to get to on the internet, on Facebook or whatever it was, rather than going to their agents, who I knew by this point, having been in film and TV and music that most of those people, most of those gatekeepers will just ignore the email. But if you, now you can just bypass them and get to these, I mean, it's harder now, but then specifically it was a new exciting thing you could do. Um, and so, yeah, everybody that I reached out to, there was something about the way in which I reached out to them, what I said, and it helped that we had this web series that was pretty decent. Um, they said yes. So we had like Craig Roberts, Dolly Wells, Rosman Hansen, all this great cast coming together. And so six weeks before she wanted to go shoot this film, or this film was meant to be going to shoot, uh, everything was all exciting and in place, but I didn't have the money now. And all I really needed was 15,000 at this point. Um, and then I was just, I was on a film as an assistant editor. And this is where I think, going back to the whole losing somebody in grief and whatever else, I think there's a resilience to people that experience mm. grief at a young age where you don't give up. You never yeah. give up. And you're not embarrassed by anything anymore. I don't know why yeah. it feels such a thing that when you lose a parent, you feel a little bit like you shouldn't tell people. Yeah, that it's, definitely. That, that, it's like, that it's like something that should be just with you and no one needs to hear that. You feel like you don't want to impose it on other people, don't you? Yeah, you do. That's you, how I felt. Yeah, you really do. And again, that's a, just talking to you now. That's probably the first time I've thought of that. But you definitely, you definitely don't want to do that. And so anyway, but that's what filmmaking feels like or any kind of art where if you've gone through grief at a young age, I think it just gives you that strength of, I don't give a shit what you think of me. You can <laughs> literally think I'm an idiot and I've got no talent and I'm being whatever else, unrealistic. But I'm going to continue to try and make this happen until somebody tells me absolutely that's not going to happen um, or, <laughs> yeah. or it becomes detrimental to my actual family. Um, so, so I just told everybody I could and this one lunch, I was assistant editor on, uh, on this uh, film in, it was called The Machine. It was in actually very local to, it was in Bridgend, very local to me in Puffball. And I was just on that and the visual effects guy there, John Rennie, he came and sat next to me. Now, he never sat next to me. I don't know what it was on this lunchtime that he felt he needed to come and sit next to me, but he was like, you're looking a bit forlorn today. What's, 
you know, what's going on. I'm not sure John says words like forlorn, but that's what I just said. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I and I basically just told him everything. I didn't care. I was I was I was crying nearly. I just thought this. I was so close to making this debut feature film, and it was being pulled away from me. And he went went quiet, and then he was just kind of like, "Okay, well, you know, don't don't get too excited." But I've just come into a bit of money, and I just looked at him, and he went, "Maybe I want to do this." Maybe I want to make this happen with you. Uh, I'll wow. tell you tomorrow. That, and I was like, what? And this is one of those moments again where I honestly feel like they don't leave you, these people that are, you love and are connected and whatever else. They, they, they're with you because that's such, a, that's such a moment of serendipity. It's like, yeah. why, would he sit, why would he sit next to me that day? What was, I mean, his ghosts are telling him to come and sit next to me and, you know, there's lots of, I think there's definitely a spiritual thing that I believe in. My mum was a Sunday school teacher. I'm not sure I necessarily believe in church and like she did and so on, but I definitely believe in good and I definitely believe that there's a spiritual level to everything that we just don't know. But yeah, I think that was one of those moments where it was just meant to be. Did he give you the money? He did, and not just the money. I mean, looking at it now and being gone through 10 years of filmmaking since, he gave me guidance that i didn't even know he was doing it really uh, and now looking back we, he he absolutely made these films happen and not not i mean in terms of functionally making them happen but also like you know he produced them in in a way of the structure of how they were going to happen we did three together we did a trilogy um after the first one did so well um and it did what we wanted with the third one, Black Mountain Poets, was Biffa nominated and it went to South by Southwest. And that was always a thing of me wanting to get to the Mumblecore people. I want, and that's where they showed their films. So, and then that was that. And I had no idea what was going to happen next. You realise a dream in a way, like you say, in taking Black Mountain Poets to South by Southwest. Take us now on from there. As you alluding to, you weren't sure what the next step was. How do we get from there to making a collaborative project like Balance Not Symmetry with Biffy Clyro. I was just kind of like, what am I doing? Like, what do I really want out of this? Because it's a job. So I was just like, I need to continue to tell these stories and they need to become, they need to become more, and this I think maybe fits in with what you're doing now in terms of your album. They, they need to become, as I get more uh, strength at being an artist and being able to call myself an artist, I'm much more able to think clearer about the things I want to explore to be able to help mm. me understand my position as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. So was Balance Not Symmetry the first time that you'd realised that you needed to tackle grief in a film? And did you, did you do it consciously? Did you, did you set out to make something that would help you personally deal with, with your grief? I think, that's the, I think that's the key thing, consciously. I mean, when I look back at all the films, they've all got something related to a loss of some kind and feeling vulnerable. And as I said, generally speaking, there's a parent issue um, of being disconnected. And I always found that odd because I've always, as I said, my childhood was very connected, but now I realize at a very young age, I, I started to lose that. Um, and so, yeah, so it was the first time that I was listening to, my dad got ill, basically. My dad started getting heart attacks after uh, what film did we do? Love Spreads. We did that one. And then we, uh, Bittersweet Symphony. I was writing that 
Oh, man, actually, Love Spreads came after that. But anyways, around about the same time, I was writing about three or four things, producing three or four things. I was doing a lot. And it was because I was trying to deny the fact that my dad was on his way out. And Bittersweet Symphony was a, meant to be a comedy and meant to be like a really age-gap relationship comedy, whereas it was Jennifer Grey from Dirty Dancing and Suki Waterhouse. And um, it was like a fun thing to explore. But within that, that started to have the death of the mother being in there. And, and also the death of the mother with scleroderma in terms of what I was seeing and so on. And I didn't, I, I totally couldn't do it. And so when I looked at, look at it now, I'm so, I'm just, it's, it's a horror to me, that film. Because there's a, there, it's almost pantomime, the way in which the mother is dying and what she's saying and, and the way they've made her look. And I say they, I'm meant to be in charge of that. But I literally just <laughs> let them carry on because I just wasn't, I couldn't understand why I was trying to do this or how I was trying to do it within a comedy. And it became really melodrama and just, I mean, it was comedy, but not for the right reasons. It was just like, <laughs> it was me laughing at, me laughing at trying to explore um, the worst thing that ever happened to me. So I didn't want to. So it's basically, I'm just laughing at it, just going, well, this is stupid, isn't it? What's the, what's the point of this? It's like, again, not wanting to admit that it's happened, not wanting to accept that it's happened. So why would you put death very much in 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 a like I'd never had death in a film. I'd had death around mm. the film. And so never, why did it change then? Why did it change in well, Balance that, Not Symmetry? As I said, it was my so it was the same time I wrote Balance Not Symmetry. But I was talking. I was I got into Biffy Clyro a bit later than my brother did. So I think it was years of listening to them and recognizing that there was a death of a mother that was involved in incredible songs that he was able to write when they became more popular. So in Puzzle, it was like, really, Simon was, you know, going into dealing with the anger and the, the frustration mm. and the desperation and so on. And then my friends had, there's a music thing that goes throughout my entire career, my friends had supported Biffy Clyro and knew them and so I could reach out to him and I, I don't even know why, what I was thinking of doing, but I thought maybe it was a documentary. And then I just started speaking to Simon um, and we had hours, hour, like three hour conversation, the first one, something like that, where it was just two grown men in the arts talking about how the thing that consumes them is that they were somehow just ripped from their mother and too early age, you know, um, at a mm. really formative age and mothers and their sons and all that kind of stuff. And we were talking about music, really. And then I came up and I was like, how am I, what do I want to do here? And I was like, I want to get his voice. And because it's so confident in terms of the way in which, you know, I think confidence is a big part as well of dealing with anything that's big in terms of its yeah. emotion. And I was like, I want to put that into one of my narratives so it doesn't become a comedy. So it can face uh, these things that happened. When I was reading up about it, it sounded like both things were being created at the same time. Am I right? The, uh, the concept for a film and also this album that Biffy were creating. I, I, from my own perspective, it feels like Simon started to understand that I was hitting a wall. And, and it basically it was because my key collaborators did change um, in that process. And, I sh and my dad died uh, a week before 
I was meant to go and shoot the film. Wow. And, well, that's huge, isn't it? And I was like, I'm just about to do the same thing. I'm just about to go into this major... It was the biggest budget that we'd had, and it was 15 days. And But I wasn't able to be... That strength that I got from having that, you know, mum dying at that, at that young age and the thing you built up around yourself and being able to go, nothing can mm. get me, you know, because that's the worst thing that could happen. Well, your other parent dying, no matter how old you are. I mean, I was only in, was I, late 30s? Of course. Um, it, you know, that, that breaks the shield. You've got to form another shield then. You've got, to, you've got to form the I'm an orphan shield then. And that sounds silly. You're a grown man with your own children. But especially not if you're an artist, the whole point is keeping sensitivity and naivety and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it was... And I, I denied it completely. I, I was speaking at his funeral as if it was something I could deal with and I was a grown man and everything's fine. But um, to then have to go and do this film with maybe not the collaborative the collaborators that I initially thought I was going to be going to do it with, it became a job and it became the thing I don't ever want it to be um, functional, basically. And I just let everybody do what they wanted to do. And I, I'm not sure I was too much help in guiding many of them. I was um, lost, essentially. Well, it sounds like you were going through a, you know, you were going through, like you say, the, the process of losing your second parent. It was uh, a very traumatic time for you. And, was there any part of you that thought maybe now's not the right time to make this film? No, I think that I'm still proud of the film. I want to say that. And I think that's because it was still what it, it was still what we set out to achieve, which was this record and film that fed off one another. And the moment at which Simon could tell that I was going into my dad having heart attacks and, and eventually dying, I think he knew he couldn't get involved in that and he had to protect himself and just move forward with the with the album i then wanted to use as much of his voice literally in terms of the songs when, when i was shooting because i was listening to the record all the time to get me through this uh, new grief and i think what's happened is is i've created something that should have been shown in clips in an exhibition in some kind of balance not symmetry art exhibit you know where you walk into it and you've got the images and you've got his voice in the music and i think it would have been much more it would have been more successful in my eyes i mean there's lots of people have watched it and said they loved it and it, they have been through grief and they they uh, really appreciate the film but i think that's because they're hearing simon's voice in the songs in the film or edith bowman said she listened to the album a few times before she watched the film and she and she said that really informed her uh, reception of the film itself and I think that's the truth as well I think that they do work hand in hand and I think you do need to experience the record before you watch the film and I think if you just sit down and watch the film in itself it's essentially a string of music videos and that's for many reasons oh I think you're being too harsh on yourself there having watched the film having not listened to the album beforehand I, I think it's much more than just uh, a series of music videos but I do agree with you that the two go hand in hand and that the music is a strong collaborator with the visuals of the film. But I could see myself a lot in Caitlin's inability to process her grief and therefore finding solace in 
creating art that she didn't know herself what it meant. And I thought the line where she says, I don't really know what a lot of this means, but it feels good to make it. And I think that was a line that certainly resonated with me. And the reasons why I pursued music at the beginning was I didn't really have a plan about what I wanted to do with my music, but I knew that at that moment, having lost that, it was the one thing that made me feel good. And I think that's an important message to tell people that are going through something like that is that creating whatever it may be, putting pen to paper or pencil onto a canvas, it it can be healing and it can help people. That's really beautiful to hear. And I think that uh, that's art and artists and so on, isn't it? It's like perceptions of things is different to audience, but everyone has their own perception. And I think that that's what was going on with that film for me is as much as I tried to hide behind again, see, and I always say the words hide behind, but I, I think that's the truth, really. There was a record there. It wasn't just my voice. There were two voices that were coming from a similar place. And um, mm-hmm. ultimately, it's a silent film. There's not really much conversation going on at all. And this is true to what happened to me when I, when I went back to university. <laughs> there wasn't, I yeah. didn't want to talk about it. I'd rather get drunk and just scream stereophonic songs, Oasis songs. But... You know, there wasn't mm. much opening up really about why I was angry, what was, you know, how it was hard to create something without feeling the upset and so on. And so there's lots in it, as I said, that I'm proud of and I'm happy it exists for my children to perhaps watch one day and, and appreciate that at that point, dad was obviously going through a moment of silence, really. But these lessons that you're le- you've le- clearly learned from making that film, are you... Are you now in a place where you feel like you could perhaps implement implement that goal that you had initially of of discussing grief openly in a film in a way that you think would be a better representation of how you want it to be portrayed? Do you feel like now, post Balance Not Symmetry, you are in a better place to do that? Is it something you want to do? Because maybe there's something within that story that I can't tell that I don't want to tell, that it's too hard. And so I don't know, uh, you know, you, you don't, whatever intentions you have as, as an artist, you, you, there's only a certain amount of structure to it. In terms of what actually comes out, I truly believe if it's meaningful, it's not up to you. It's up to whatever, you know, the, the magic of that moment. I suppose, is grief still... Uh an inspirational driving force for you is what I'm getting at. Is yeah. it still something you want to explore? We just had She Is Love released last week, um, which was the film that I did in the pandemic when I was really thinking about, well, I could die, that I'm not fit, you know, and my children, we left without a parent and all that kind of stuff. And that opened up, obviously, all, all the stuff I've been going through. And I had time to grieve for my dad as well, finally, um, during that lockdown. Approached grief in a different way. So it wasn't directly about me and my mother, it was about my mum and what maybe she'd gone through. Uh, and, and so these two people eventually, 10 years later, they happenstance meet again when they're much older, they're like, not much older, they're 10 years older, they're in their 30s, and they're able to, to talk about what went on there um, in a much more, just because as you get older, you're able to, to talk about things a bit easier or you're much more able to deal with things a bit better you've got the experience to be able to deal with things better and uh and then what would happen you know just i think men- mainly the idea that once you express you know like we've been doing it in this conversational podcast or 
is the idea of expressing what's going on in the hope that you you leave with some kind of more understanding and a hope, more hopeful future, basically. You're talking about an, a desire to to comprehend what we've been through, the loss of your mother, and to put it in a way that can feel hopeful, uh, that can feel like there's a hope for a brighter future. Um, if we look at that future for you now, do you think there is forever going to be elements of your mum and of parental loss in the work that you do looking ahead or do you feel like there are other subjects now that you want to tackle and does does the idea of tackling grief in a in a future film appeal or does it feel like something that you want to move on from now i believe it was renoir he did le regle de jeu i mean rules of the game french film i think it's renoir but he said that we essentially make the same film over and over again. That it's uh, the reason to be a filmmaker is you're trying to figure out your own position in the world and control it. Um, so that's why I just called Shears Love is an existential crisis comedy. And I think that's basically what it is. And maybe that's the best version of me being able to face grief in my work is to be able for it to be that really, which is a drama with comedic flourishes. And I think that, um, so I think I'm getting closer to the best version of me as a storyteller hmm. in, 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 you know, the key driving thing behind. I'm, I'm just about to go into a film. I'm not sure I can talk about it, but the, the storyline is definitely, again, much more uh, specifically about a loss and how a family deals with that loss. Um, so similar themes to, to things I've done, but I'm much more, I don't know, confident about how I'll approach that and how, mm -hmm. because I'm getting more successful at being able to, you know, communicate with the key collaborators as to what it is I want. So to go to a bigger cast now for this next one um, and to continue to kind of explore loss and what that means to a family or to a key relationship, then I think that's, and this one's about siblings as well in terms of how they deal, mm. how they deal with the sibling nature of that. Is the, is the filmmaking process for you a healing process? Do you feel better for having done it and for putting it out there into the world and creating a body of work that, that is distilled from the loss of her? She wanted me, this person, me to be this person in the world because she could see within me something that ne wasn't necessarily within our family. I think moving forward, I feel in a much more, what's the word, vital space really, where the whole, where I was headed feels like, well, now it's just speeding up. Um, the idea of finally getting to a spot where I get closer to reconnecting with both mm. of them, really through other people connecting with my work. I mean, that's the key thing I think actually for artists is the idea that even though you're, you're doing it as self-expression, I think naturally it comes from within you and, and naturally you are trying to reach somebody or something. And I feel that with Rothko's, for example, as much as I do with a song by Simon Neal, I want, I want mm. to get to that point where people watch my films and they feel like they are connecting with what I, recognize in my mother 
and my father, which was this two people that were just so full of love and hope and just appreciation for being alive and being so desperately existentially, you know, in crisis since my mother left. I think that's what I'm trying to do as well is reach back out and go, I'm here, I'm alive. And it's actually a really bloody good thing, isn't it? <laughs> Life is good. <laughs> Life is good. Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Um, thank you for being so open and, and sharing your story. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing your films in the future. No, Take yeah, care. thanks so much for reaching out. And um, I can't wait to hear your album. Cheers, man. Thanks. No worries, though. You can find Jamie Adams on social media. Links to his profile are in the episode description. Make sure that you rate and subscribe to this podcast as it will help to spread the word about Feels Like Healing. Thanks for listening.